0: Now is the part of our service where we sit down and listen to a sermon. I'm the only thing that's keeping you from a cookout. Well, a couple other things, but um, yeah, apparently, uh, I went like really long last week, so I won't do that today. Um, so good morning again for the benefit of guests. My name is Joe Miller, and I am the lead pastor here at New Hope Community Church. Um, well, I'm sure that many of us would have preferred that this week's weather would have been slightly less wet. I'm hoping that this weekend's sunshine has dried up some of, uh, of our backyard so that we can have a pleasant cookout after service. Um, just uh, want to say a monumental thanks uh, needed to Jen Hobson and Wendy Tuttle, Tim and Beth Fales, Caitlin and Melissa, and all kinds of other people who aren't here, I don't think, because they're out there getting ready. Uh, just thank them when you, when you get out there, thank them for the coordination of uh, the cookout, I'm sure it's going to be great. Um, of course, we planned this day, we planned this day as a baby dedication uh, and to have a cookout because we knew that we'd have visitors and we figured that it would be a good time to celebrate together. See, as uh, we've mentioned before, New Hope desires to be a community that celebrates new life. And and does so not in some sort of private ceremony, but rather in the midst of Sunday morning worship. The idea that these children dedicated today aren't merely the children of New Hope families. They are New Hope Community Church is something that we take very seriously. Our goal here is to be a church that is growing young, one that seeks to incorporate kids into the lifeblood of our church. Jesus was very clear about the importance of kids and how vital it is for each of us to embrace um, not A childish faith. We got plenty of childish behavior, but a childlike faith. Not just because it's important for adults to connect with kids, but because it's an important thing for adults to learn from kids. In this way, a dedication is an affirmation of life. A dedication is not just of the child to God, but of the community to the child. Today, We're finishing up a series called Equip, Inspire, and Influence. It's a six-week series on influence and leadership. See, our foundational premise of this series um, has been that every person, every person in this room, every person at your job site, every church person in your, on your soccer team, every person at your school, every person is a leader because every person has influence over the environments in which they've been placed. Whether you have some sort of formal leadership role or not, the truth is that the choices that we make on that job site, on that, in that classroom, in the office, on that sports field, so on, those choices, choices can serve to cultivate an environment of productivity, of growth, of abundant life. Of course, they can also serve other more selfish means. I believe that each of us was created by a dynamic God, one who gives his creation the gift, not to mention the responsibility to continue to cultivate, to protect, to guide subsequent generations. But we're also called to bear one another's burdens, pour ourselves specifically into others, regardless of the relationship. In this last week of the series, I want us to think, about what choices we're making, what choices each and every person in this room are making to make this world a better place through the things that we do for others. You see, Christians believe that in Jesus, God is putting the world back together again. You see, there's a false narrative out there a false narrative that suggests that the point of Christianity is to offer moral guidelines to humanity so that they can just earn a place in heaven when they die. And, and my friends, that is not the gospel. The gospel, the, the good news, is that God sees the darkest corners of this world, the, the, the corners of this world that are consumed with war and greed and corruption and lies and hatred and violence and poverty and injustice. And instead of abstractly dictating a better way from some far distant cloud, Jesus, God enters into this dark world in the personhood of Jesus Christ and starts a revolution of redemption that we're invited into by free grace. As such, every time we offer an encouraging thought to a co-worker, every time we build into the life of a child, every time we we be the sort of friend that you'd want to have, every time that we give another human being the benefit of the doubt rather than the edge of our wit, Every time we do those things, we build for God's kingdom, not for some glad morning when we fly away, but because we're interested in building for the kingdom of God here and now, today. On November 9th, 1854, the 97-year-old Eliza Schuyler Hamilton passed away in Washington, D.C., just over 50 years earlier, I'm sure many of you know this story. Just over 50 years earlier, Eliza had lost her husband, who was her husband? Yeah, there you go. Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton to a duel with then Vice President Aaron Burr in a long tradition of Vice President shooting people. <laughs> to the end, Eliza fought to preserve her husband's place in history. While revolutionary titans such as John Adams and Thomas Jefferson were able to explain themselves with with romantic prose through this deathbed correspondence, Hamilton remained silenced by Burr's bullet. History moved into the problems facing the United States throughout the first half of the 19th century, but Eliza spent that half century preserving the past while building for the future. Hamilton biographer Ron Chernow talks about how Eliza spent the years following her husband's death attempting to rescue her husband's historical reputation from the gross slanders that had tarnished it. She collected and cherished his correspondence. She interviewed anyone she could find to speak on his character and his work and petitioned several to write this massive multi-volume biography of Hamilton's life. While it's reasonable to suggest that that some of those efforts were probably fueled by pride, that seemed to be overshadowed by her sheer love of her husband, of her husband's legacy. Perhaps because of her dedication, Hamilton's work is now given the respect that it deserves, especially with Broadway musicals being written about him. Theodore Roosevelt once remarked that Hamilton was the most brilliant statesman who ever lived, possessing the loftiest and keenest intellect of his time. That was probably something for Roosevelt to admit that. Chernow was, also describes Eliza as someone of a fiercely dedicated, someone who was fiercely dedicated to her faith, who had the vision and courage to work towards the redemption of the dark corner of her husband's story. Namely, the torturous childhood, his torturous childhood as an orphan in the Caribbean. Chernow says that Eliza was a woman of towering strength and integrity who consecrated much of her extended widowhood to serving widows, orphans, and poor children. Less than two years after her husband's death, she co-founded the New York Orphan Asylum Society, the first private orphanage in New York. In the years that followed, she raised money, leased prophecies' uh, properties, uh, visited almshouses, investigated complaints, and solicited donations of coal, shoes, and Bibles. She often gave the older orphans in her uh, uh, jobs in her own home and even helped one gated minutes to West Point. On one occasion, her son teased her and said, "Mama, you are a sturdy beggar." And she responded, "My dear son, I cannot spare myself or others. My maker has pointed out this duty to me and has given me the ability and inclination to perform it. See, here was a remarkable woman who used her past, even the parts of her past that were incredibly painful, to then build into others for a better tomorrow. See, there is an interconnectivity to the stories being told that cannot, that should not be neglected. In our society, there is a deeply rooted commitment to the advancement of the individual. We, we justifiably place high value on stories of men and women who have worked their way up in this world to do amazing things. Our maker has often given us the ability and the inclination to perform incredible deeds To that end, there is a personal dimension to our life, and there's certainly a personal dimension to our faith. And that's why New Hope has chosen not to practice infant baptism. We desire to see each person in our community come to a place where they make a personal decision to follow Christ. At some point, Jesus asks us, he he gets us alone, it's just him and us, and he looks us in the eye and he says, now, now, who do you say that I am? And in that moment, I I think it's inadequate inadequate just for us to say, well, I I was raised Lutheran, or I was raised raised Methodist, or I was raised as part of New Hope, you know, or I I prayed a prayer one time, I, I think that took care of it. No, no, Jesus is going to look us in the eye and he's, no, 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 put down, put down the religion for a moment. Put, put down the traditions for a moment. Put down all of this stuff. Put, put that down for a moment. Just you and me, Joe, you and me in the room, who do you say that I am? So in that light, we do want to place a high value on each person's faith being their own. But... We cannot forget that Christianity at its core is fundamentally an other-oriented faith. Jesus was very clear about the truth that there is an intimate connection between loving God and loving others. If you're ever at a place where you're wondering how you're tracking with your relationship with God, take a moment and think about how you treat other people. You know, think, I think it'll give you a powerful clue People are God's most precious commodity. Conversely, though, if you're wondering how you might make a, more of a difference in this world, if you might work to the most important problems of our day, work to help people, work to help your community, work to help in your, in your society, and work to be a person of influence, personally, I think that you can start, that you should start, with no better place than examining your own personal relationship with God. These truths, they get played out repeatedly throughout our lives. But in our closest relationships, that's where they're taken to an all-new level. We see this in marriage. We see this even on the job site. We see this on teams. We see, we see this in sports teams. Um, the intimacy that can happen between two people who are working towards a common goal. We saw that. We saw that with Eliza Hamilton. And time and a time again, we do see it in Scripture. One of my favorite examples of one person who poured themselves out into another is the Apostle Paul and his relationship with his protege, Timothy. The letter our Bibles refer to as Second Timothy is probably Paul. He's probably this old man close to the end of his life. Giving some final dying words of, the correspond, of correspondence to this man that he cares about, a man who is charged with continuing the story of the gospel after Paul is gone. Call, Paul calls him my beloved child. Listen to Paul's words to this beloved child. This is from 2 Timothy 1, starting in verse 2. To Timothy. My beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I am grateful to God, whom I worship with a clear conference, consci- conscience, as my ancestors did, when I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. Recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith A faith that lived first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now, I am sure, lives in you. For this reason, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is within you through the laying on of hands. For God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and of love and of self-discipline. See, it's possible that Timothy, some would call him Timid Timothy, has shrunken back a bit from the faith of his youth. But Paul is using this opportunity to encourage this man that he, becau- that he calls his beloved child not to live a spirit of timidity or cowardice, but to embrace this life, this free grace of a life of love. One that doesn't shrink from difficult things like self-discipline. All of this is put in the context of Paul's instruction for the life of sincere faith. And isn't it great who Paul uh, turns to as an example of this sincere faith? Timothy's grandmother and his mother. Paul's not just saying, listen to me, I'm the religious man here giving you truth. No, he's pointing to people who care about Timothy, who've poured their life into Timothy, who raised Timothy from a young boy. They've poured that sincere faith into him all his life. I love that this was what Paul was thinking about in the last years of his life, writing letters to leaders in the church, encouraging them to look to others from previous generations to equip, to inspire, and to influence the church for tomorrow. Friends, we're here today to celebrate the new children in our community, but we are also here to celebrate the roles of parents, the roles of grandparents, the roles of aunts and uncles and friends and family and house churches and anybody who sees the importance of raising a child and also who sees, by the way, that every man and woman in this church, even someone who is 97 years old, is also a child of God, who sees those people and then they dedicate themselves to doing whatever's appropriate to then pour their lives into them, into that person, into another human being, because that's how they show love to God. One of the most commonly quoted passages from from 2 Timothy is 2 Timothy 3.16. says that all Scripture is God breathed and it's useful for for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped For every good work. I mean, isn't it great that Paul, on his deathbed, was still thinking about growth. He was still thinking about education. He was still thinking about discipleship. He was still thinking about generations that are going to build in, that when he leaves, he's still going to continue this work. He's still thinking about the story that he was passing down to Timothy. When Paul uses the phrase, all scripture, he was most immediately thinking about the Torah. The identity that Israel had as God's people was given to them in this form of an epic story. I think there was something of of this kind of epic, big picture, God's story, God's narrative, the story that we find ourselves in. There was something of that in Paul's words to his protege, Timothy. See, Paul was absolutely convinced that the, that, the story, that, that story had reached its climax in the rule and reign, not, not in Paul, by the way, not, not, he didn't think that he, he had root, uh, reached its climax in Paul's story. And it was Paul's story that Timothy needed to continue. No, Paul was convinced that that climax of that story that God is telling is in the rule and reign of Jesus. And that is what he spent his life proclaiming. And that was the story that he wanted Timothy to continue to proclaim. And that is the story that we continue to proclaim today. You see, Paul didn't want Timothy to continue his story. Paul wasn't interested in Timothy declaring the works of Paul to the world. All of this, all of this was pointing towards Jesus, the one who is the king of this story, the one who this autobiography is all about. As our worship team comes back up, I just want to spend a few moments praying for the kids that were dedicated here this morning and for our church. Father, we are humbled by the work that you do in our midst. Father, when we consider Scripture and we consider the the teachings of Jesus, we find that we don't build the kingdom. We cannot, we should not, we, we cannot think that for, for an instance that we are the ones who are doing the work to build for God's kingdom and aren't we so great by our own power or our, by our own cunning? No. We can build for God's kingdom because you have already built it. You have already set up your rule and reign and our responsibility as human beings is to live into the freedom that you have declared in your resurrection. Father, we just give this day to you. We give these kids to you. We give these families to you. We give this church to you, Father, that you would have your way with us, that you would guide us, that you would build this church, that you would overflow this this room, but not by our own power and cunning, but because that you sense community here that should not be hidden. I just pray that uh, th- this after church cookout that we'll have, uh, that just uh, praise you for the, for the food, that it would nourish our bodies uh, and that our conversations as, as we meet new folks and, and continue our, um, our time together in fellowship would, would be blessed uh, that you would nourish our bodies and bless our conversation. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I ask all of these things and all God's people said, Amen. Grace and peace.